welcome to the Changing Directions Filmmaker Podcast Series presented by 206.com. I am your host, Mark Morin, and I'm speaking with award-winning filmmaker Erica Cohn, whose award-winning documentary, Belly of the Beast, has been touring the globe at film festivals, special screenings, and was even featured as part of the PBS series, Independent Lens. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you being here. To start off, there was recently a big announcement from the governor of California that directly relates to Belly of the Bees, which we definitely want to talk about. But before we go there, let's introduce the listeners to you and the documentary first, if that's right with you. Sure. Thank you. Now, first off, give me a short breakdown of what Belly of the Beast is about, and then we'll expand from there. Sure. So Belly of the Beast centers around a courageous woman who was involuntarily sterilized at the age of 24 while undergoing another routine procedure while she was incarcerated at the Central California Women's Facility, which is the world's largest women's prison. And she teams up with a radical lawyer to stop human rights abuses in women's prisons. And with a growing team of investigators who are inside prison, working with colleagues in the free world, as we say, or non-incarcerated populations, they start uncovering a series of statewide crimes ranging from inadequate access to healthcare, to sexual assault, to the course of sterilizations, primarily targeting women of color. And together they wage this near impossible battle against the Department of Corrections, really exposing modern day eugenics while fighting for reparations. Now, after watching the documentary and then doing a little bit more reading about it, it seems like for you especially, this was a very collaborative effort between you, your primary subjects, you just mentioned Kelly Dillon and Cynthia Chandler, and your team of producers as well, including Angela Tucker and Kristen Marquez, among others. So there's so much more going on with this film than just showing up, doing some research, interviewing some people, and then editing it together for a documentary. Tell me how you first got involved in the project and and how did it develop from there? Yeah, thank you for that. I loved being able to talk about the unique collaboration in this film. You know, I first came across this story after meeting Cynthia Chandler through a mutual friend in 2010. And I was incredibly inspired by her compassionate release work. She was the first attorney in California to get someone out of prison under compassionate release. And was so inspired by the organization that she co-founded Justice Now, which was the only organization in the country that had board members who are currently incarcerated, really informing strategy, informing policy from the inside out, as opposed to the outside in. And one of their campaigns was called the Let Our Families Have a Future campaign. And that essentially exposed the multiple ways that prisons destroy the basic fundamental human right to family. One of the most heinous, of course, being the illegal sterilizations primarily targeting women of color. And immediately to me, that screamed eugenics. You know, as a Jewish woman, the phrase never again was always in the back of my mind. And when I learned about this different kind of genocide that was happening through imprisonment, more generally speaking, and then more specifically through the forced sterilizations behind bars, I knew that I wanted to get involved some way, somehow. And initially that was actually as a volunteer. Cynthia invited me into the organization where I later became a volunteer legal advocate, providing direct services for over 150 people inside California's women's prisons. 
And from that work, in collaboration with people inside, began working on a project that would ultimately become Belly of the Beast. And kind of in the beginning stages, the idea was to really chronicle the incredible human rights documentation work that was happening inside prison, peer to peer, and funneled out through this incredible underground network of activists, because of course the Department of Corrections wouldn't want this information getting out. Right, exactly. And, you know, I had the chance a couple of years into the process to meet Kelly Dillon. And I had heard about her powerful activism from so many people inside. Um, her name was very much um, a, a name that was championed in the Justice Now organization and with others inside prison. And at the time when I met her, she was working in Los Angeles doing the incredible gang intervention and domestic violence prevention work that she does. And was very focused on career building and community building at that time and had kind of set the sterilization issue aside, but was still very passionate in getting this issue out and exposed. And so she actually became involved as a creative collaborator, as an advisor behind the scenes initially. And that relationship started to change after the Center for Investigative Reporting's work was released in 2013 by the incredible reporter Corey Johnson, who you meet in the film as well. And for the first time, Mark, there was this incredible momentum, you know, a national conversation, potential for legislation, potential for litigation, and Kelly got called back in to testify on behalf of so many people who otherwise would be unable to testify. You know, the movement really needed her. And that was the moment that Kelly and I decided that we would start filming her leading up to her testifying. Ah, okay. And the more and more we filmed, it became so abundantly clear that the film really needed to center around her story and her relationship with Cynthia Chandler. And I think it's important to note that if it hadn't been for Kelly's courage and selfless advocacy to begin with, there wouldn't have been a film, there wouldn't be the Center for Investigative Reporting's work on this issue, we wouldn't be talking on this podcast today. (laughs) You know, it just, it really all centers around um, Kelly's initial discovery and how through her we meet other survivors. That's amazing. Thank you for explaining it that way. And just watching the documentary and who she is and what she goes through and her story, she seems like such an amazing woman just for, I mean, even just surviving that whole experience. And then now the way you describe it, I'm like, wow, who who is this woman? And, you know, she needs to be like, where are the statues of her and stuff like that? You know, hopefully someday. But yeah, so you said it's really collaborative with her. So as far as with Kelly and the other people, like, how much was she involved in the actual like filmmaking side of things? And so you touched on that a little bit versus just being the subject of the documentary. Yeah, both Kelly, Cynthia, Kelly and Cynthia, and also Courtney Hooks, who is the campaign manager um, at Justice Now, who's also featured in the film, a secondary character, um, were very involved. Um, Kelly and Cynthia looked at cuts throughout the pro- you know, throughout the, the process. They looked at fundraising reels. You know, Cynthia was always accessible in terms of grant applications and me bouncing ideas off her about how to contextualize the historical backdrop. Kelly, I was always brainstorming how do we how do we place audiences in this environment and how do we not 
further perpetuate the legacy of the hypersexualization of women in prison and the further marginalization of a population that is near invisible. How do we, you know, confront and move beyond the stereotypical kind of glamorized, hyper uh, sensationalized depictions of imprisonment? And how, you know, in this in this space where we don't have a lot of access to prisons, can we reimagine what it might look like? Right, right. So throughout the process, I'm, I'm so grateful to have had my collaborators also be the people who were in, you know, on the other side of the camera, as well as being able to work with, you know, the incredible producers you mentioned, Angela Tucker and Nicole Dafta and Kristen Marquez and executive producers and su such an incredible <laughs> dream team. One of the aspects of collaboration in this project that was so unique was also the collaboration with the survivors who were inside prison. Mm. And every step of the way, they were involved in the storytelling of their own stories. So that was continually asking for consent. That was continually um, sharing how their material would be used. It was brainstorming and creatively thinking about how we could visualize their stories. It was ensuring that they would have access to the film through a PBS broadcast because public television is the only way that people inside have, can see a, a film. One of the only consistent stations that people inside have access to. It meant that, you know, when we were ready to do the credits, asking if people still wanted to be named or could change if they wanted to be anonymous or change their names at all. It meant making major, major creative decisions like who would be the musical voice of the film. And everyone said it has to be Mary J. Blige. So then the <laughs> challenge became, how do we get Mary J. Blige to be the musical voice of this film? I think that that collaboration was just so incredibly unique and handled with such care uh, on both ends that this work has really birthed, you know, a movement behind the film. Oh, no, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned Mary J. Blige because I absolutely wanted to talk about her. She's one of my favorite singers. In my opinion, she's one of the most amazing, emotionally powerful singers of really the last few decades. And, and here she is with a song in your documentary. So tell me more about how she got involved and the process of getting that song made. So for Kelly, Mary J's music got her through some of the most challenging times in prison. And Kelly's real love and respect for Mary J's music was not unique. So many people inside felt the same way. And once we found out that this had to be Mary J Blige, our team, you know, wrote a very passionate letter describing the, you know, detailing why we wanted her involved. And we worked with the music supervisor, uh, Tracy McKnight, who's an incredible, incredible collaborator as well. And as soon as she saw the film, we sent her a rough cut. It wasn't even a finished film at this point. As soon as she saw it, she said, I have to be involved 1000%. I need to be involved. And then the challenge became, well, we know we want uh, Mary J to write a song that ends the film, that takes us from the end of the film into the end credits. But we didn't have an ending of the film at that point. Oh, no. And so in this really kind of interesting, synergistic, serendipitous moment where all of a sudden the reparations movement was really starting to take off. I mean, now this is the fourth year that this has been proposed, but in that moment it was very new. 
Kelly and Cynthia were going to the Capitol to testify, to talk about the importance of reparations and to propose this bill. And that was also the moment that Mary J. Blige decided to work with Nova Wave and DJ Camper. And in the vein of this kind of reparations movement and this being the next step of accountability and, and justice, they wrote an incredibly beautiful song that we cut that last scene to. And we really wanted to leave viewers feeling inspired to create change, but also feeling the weight of these heinous human rights abuses. And no matter how much reparations or how much uh, an apology can mean, these wounds can never heal. So she just really, really got it. I mean, the lyrics, some wounds never healed. Can't you see what you've done? You know, really illustrate that. So I'm beyond grateful for that collaboration as well. No, absolutely. And I can't think of a better person to have in that role of providing that song because you're right. I can understand why Kelly and all of these other women really connected with Mary J. Blige in their situation on that level. Because, you know, even me being in a completely different situation in life, you know, I love her music because you can connect to it. Just the level of emotion is amazing. So, you know, thank you for, for explaining her involvement. That's really uh, amazing and impressive to me, almost like a it was meant to be type thing, not just for her, but all the way around, uh, you know, with uh, everybody involved with the project, like you said, the generosity of the subjects, being involved with the collaboration, the producers, Mary J. Blige. So can you talk about that a little bit more of how, I mean, I get the sense that it was like a meant to be type thing as things fell into place, but did you feel that as you were making the film or is it more something that you look back on and, and say, wow, that, that was amazing? That's a really good question because I think in the process of making this film, there was a process of letting go a lot and handing it over to the universe and handing it over to the belief that this film was going to be the film that it needed to be, no matter how long it took, no matter how challenging it was, no matter how many times we had to convince people that this was a film worth investing in or watching um, or confronting, you know, a, a very gnarly history of eugenics that per continues to be pervasive in many different facets of society. And so, you know, Kelly talks a little bit about the process of, of letting go of expectations. And she was so, she was so instrumental for me, you know, like let, let go of the idea that this film is going to be released at a certain time. This film is going to, this film is taking on a life of its own. Like take a step back and just let the process happen. I mean, Kelly's kind of a, a brilliant intuitive and leader in so many aspects. So I really took a lot of guidance from her you know, in retrospect, all of that was true. This film, we thought we will, I have an interesting story to tell you, Mark, about how we thought at the end of 2018 that the film was done. We thought that the film was like close to picture lock, that we were ready to submit to festivals, we were ready to release it into the world. And all of a sudden, I was fact-checking details of Kelly's case and found a deposition, her deposition footage in like a case of files that it took me months to track down. And we totally restructured the film around that deposition because you're really placed in the midst of an unfolding trial. You see Kelly as that young woman 
who is dealing with the the effects of the sterilization abuse and the effects of the tra- the previous trauma that ended that um, resulted in her being in prison in the first place. And you see the hope and the dreams that she had at that age, which she's now living out. And Kelly said, absolutely use it. You know, she didn't want to watch the deposition, rewatch it, but she said, you know, use it. I think it's important. And then I had been trying for a, for a long time to, to locate nurses or former medical professionals who would be able to, to speak on the record about their experiences. And it had been incredibly challenging because even though people were no longer working for the prison, they were still afraid of retaliation. You know, when we think of prisons as retaliatory environments, we oftentimes think of prisons as being retaliatory for those who are housed, those who are incarcerated, as opposed to the people who work there. And there was tremendous fear that their pensions would be taken away, or tremendous fear that other things, other retaliatory measures could happen. And towards the end of this process, when we found the deposition footage was also the time that two nurses agreed to speak on the record, on camera, about their experiences. And again, we restructured the entire film around it, so. Oh, that's just incredible. Thank you for telling that story, because I can't imagine the documentary without her deposition footage, and then also without these nurses in there. So it's like, it's it blows my mind to think that, like you just said, you had a film almost ready to go, and then you still added these pieces into it. So that, that's just phenomenal. Thank you for, for that story. Erica, this might not be the easiest question to answer, given everything involved, but specifically as a filmmaker, as a director, what was the biggest challenge overall? Is there one thing you can point to about making this film where you're like, man, that that was really tough and I'm, I'm glad we got through that? I think there are so many challenges in the making of this film. You know, one of one of them was the whole process of letting go, of letting letting go that this film needed to be made within a certain time frame. This film needed to be released, you know, in theaters, in person. You know, we released this film during the pandemic in the, you know, and I think there's a lot of beauty that came out of releasing a film during this time in terms of impact and accessibility. A lot more people saw this film who may otherwise wouldn't have even heard of it. I think the conversations surrounding eugenics and systemic racism and population control and institutionalized racism are very different. Prison abolition in the past year, you know, those aren't conversations that we probably could have had with maximum impact had the film been released three years ago. So I think that the biggest, one of the biggest challenges for me was letting go. I think a challenge in terms of filmmaking was funding. This project really took a lot of time to get off the ground. It wasn't until after the Center for Investigative Reporting's work came out um, that we were able to get some traction. I think that a lot of funders didn't either didn't believe that this was actually happening, despite the fact that I had hundreds of testimonials from my work at Justice Now describing what was going on. You know, we all know if this happens to one person, it's happening to too many people. Exactly. So the fact that the fact that there was this burden of proof or the, this additional validation that was needed from the Center for Investigative Reporting to even put this on the map, I think was was challenging. And then from there, you know, we encountered all kinds of responses, you know, and talk in describing how important this was. I think a lot of people felt 
as we're still seeing now that people who are in prison don't have rights. It just goes back to to kind of the, the discussion we had at the beginning, that there's so imprisonment and how it's depicted um, in our media and how prisons are literally designed to destroy families, to alienate a certain population, to keep them away from, you know, a free world population. And that there's no transparency in terms of media access. There's no access with public transportation that we really had a lot of work to do in breaking down why people didn't care. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, that would definitely be um, a lot of challenges. It seems like every step of the way. Now, you do all this work over years and years, everything you've just described, all the way back from volunteering to the, to the filmmaking, not just putting the film together, but really living in this world and being a part of it. So it must have been an incredible feeling, like, or maybe even a scary feeling, once you actually put the film in, in front of audiences. So what type of feedback were you getting from audiences during the first few screenings? And what was it like as you were leading up to those moments? Oof. Uh, it was it was incredibly anxiety producing because I think a, a huge component of this was we were under the radar. We couldn't be public about the making of this film to protect the campaign against sterilization abuse, to end sterilization abuse, as well as some of the film participants who are currently inside to protect them from retaliation and also their, you know, continuing legal cases. So we weren't, you know, on a website. We didn't release like a trailer. We didn't have any information. Even a lot of friends didn't know that I was working on this project. It's like I had to keep part of my life a secret. And so it was, it felt very weird to all of a sudden be releasing a film into the world, having not been able to talk about it for so long. And then I think that the additional barrier of not being able to be in person with an audience, it's like, oh, what, what, is this, what does this mean? I'm releasing a film onto the internet, you know, for people to see in an online film festival. And then later online theatrical, a digital theatrical, it it's a, adds like a, one, one more step or one more barrier to actually fully realizing the realness or the, the momentous occasion. It still uh, hasn't quite felt like the release of other films, you know? Right. But I think the feedback that we've received has really helped uh, the reality of this sink in. And, you know, we can talk about reparations too, but the how this film helped create political will for the change that we're seeing right now is, is pretty profound. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Now, that's a great transition into one of the final questions here. As I mentioned at the beginning, the California Governor Gavin Newsom recently made a big announcement. So I'm going to let you tell the listeners what that was and how it relates to the documentary. Sure. So last week, Governor Newsom signed a $7.5 million request for reparations into the budget. And I think that the victory of this budget request is an important step for California in confronting really its shameful history and, and taking a bold stand against racist and sexist and ableist practices that continue to perpetuate health inequities really to this day. Right. And so between 1909 and 1979, California sterilized at least 20,000 people under its uh, eugenics program, accounting for 
one third of the sterilizations nationwide, the historic sterilizations during that period. And, you know, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, incarcerated people, people with disabilities, people living in poverty were, were all disproportionately targeted for, for the eugenic sterilizations. And then, of course, Although the state repealed its eugenics law in 1979, it continued to sterilize people in, in, pris in women's prisons until quite recently, just until a few years ago. So California is now the first state to provide notification of coerced sterilization and reparations to survivors. I think it's important to note that a lot of people still to this day don't know that they were sterilized. So this is an important key part of the reparations is the notification process to survivors who were sterilized while incarcerated. And uh, California is also now the third state to pass reparations for those who were sterilized in the historic eugenics program um, after North Carolina and Virginia. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. And I like how you frame that of, there's an admission of guilt almost by putting this out there and approving it and making the announcement. And it's not just exactly this specific topic, it's everything, you know, everything that, that was fought for over the last year, year and a, and a half. And it, it, I think in a big picture perspective, it might be a small moment, the announcement that Governor Newsom made, but it really could lead to some amazing things down the road if the momentum stays and continues and, and we're able to move forward with this. Yeah, I hope this really creates a ripple effect throughout the rest of California, throughout the rest of the nation, and throughout the rest of the globe. You know, as you mentioned, eugenics is alive and well. It's not just through the illegal sterilizations. We're witnessing population control and, you know, systemic racism through policing, through imprisonment, through the immigration detention system, through who has access to healthcare during the pandemic. And so if belly of the beast and this kind of moment right now as reparations passes for the first time in California can be a part of this broader conversation and help create additional political will to continue this, it would be it would be amazing. Oh, that's that's outstanding. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add in about the film, about this whole world we're talking about that we haven't touched on yet? To commemorate the victory of uh, reparations passing, the film is on pbs.org, has been re-released and is streaming for free through the end of July. So check it out on pbs.org. And just grateful for the time together, Mark. It's been, it's been great. Erica, it's been great speaking with you and I really appreciate you taking the time to be part of this interview series. Thank you. One last thing, I just wanted to say that my most um, my most recent, my latest project uh, just came out on Tuesday on the New York Times Op Docs. It's a short film about an incredibly creative family who, after 15 years of living in their car and struggling with housing instability, secures an apartment in San Francisco on the eve of the pandemic. And it's this beautiful love poem to their children from the parents about the meaning of home and family and security. Oh, that's great. Thank you for mentioning that. And all on the webpage for this interview, I'll have links available for how people can, you know, get more information on Belly of the Beast and I'll add that in. That's that's amazing news. Thank you for, for adding that in. My pleasure. Thank you. This is the Changing Directions podcast interview series featuring Erica Cohn, director of Belly of the Beast.
Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review on iTunes, and share on social media. Any way you can support the podcast is very much appreciated. You can find every podcast episode and all of my movie reviews on 206.com. This is the Changing Directions podcast series presented by 206.com.